This is something on Facebook uh, by Goldcast about Oprah Winfrey. Five years later, Oprah is forced to confront her mother. My mother was dying. I um, got a call from my sister that she thought it was the end. So I hopped on a plane and I surprised my mother. And she's like sitting in, in this little room. It's like 80 degrees and she just watches TV all day. I sat with my mother and I said, um, I don't know if you're going to make it. Do you think you're going to make it? And she said, I, I don't think I am. And I had a conversation with her about what that felt like. I started telling all the people who cared about her, if you want to say goodbye, you should come and say goodbye. And then I left, and I left knowing that that was going to be the last time. The next day, I had a bunch of meetings in California, and I canceled all of those meetings, and I went back to Milwaukee because I felt like I had not closed it. I wanted to make sure that I said everything I wanted to say. So I went back, and I waited for a way to say what I wanted to say and I was praying for a way in and I just walked in with my iPhone and something said voice said play some music so I started playing some music and I could see that it opened her a little bit because my mother's been a very closed down person and I could see that the music gave me an opening to say what I needed to say and what I said was thank you as a young girl having a baby no education 17 you get pregnant with this baby lots of people would have told you to give that baby away and you didn't do that and I know that was hard and I want you to know that no matter what I know that you always did the best you knew how to do being the mother that you knew how to be, even though many times it wasn't what I thought I needed. And I want you to know I bless you and I give you peace and I want you to go in peace and to know I love you. I would say to anybody, say the things that you need to say while the people are still alive so that you are not one of those people living with regret about what you should have said. Forgiveness is giving up the hope that the past could be any different. You think forgiving means accepting what has happened to you. Well, it is accepting that it has happened to you. Not accepting that it was okay for it to happen. It is accepting that it has happened. When I got that, I think it took me to the next level of being a better person because I don't hold grudges for anything or any situation and neither should you. It's letting go so that the past does not hold you prisoner. Forgiveness is like medicine. Medicine that can heal your pain. It can bring you peace and ultimately this is what we want for all of you to be
you or any one of your family members are farmers, agricultural workers, field workers, and have any symptoms like tremors or shaking. Um, that sounds weird. Oh, what was that? Um, welcome back to the, oh, what, what on earth? What is that? What is that? Oh, this font. Anyway, welcome back to the place that forgot my metal show. And shout outs to ZKMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona. And, or und, wie geht's? How's your German? Marika. So, uh, uh, we're um, cruising through Facebook. These are pretty interesting. Oh my gosh, no. Gosling Arbans. On September 24th, the History and Memes Twitter account posted a video montage of the Prince of Wales and the Duke of Sussex getting their sweat on. First, Prince Harry came off looking way more athletically inclined than his brother. While William struggled on rope and slowly huh. crossed a pipe, Harry was ascending ropes with lightning-fast speed. The video finished off the athleticism with an old clip of King Charles III, wherein he slowly but surely made his way up a rock-climbing wall in full suit and dress shoes. The caption, in all of its meme glory, read, Prince Harry is a mother's son but prince william is definitely his father's son yikes in true twitter fashion some piled on even more jabs in agreement whereas others pointed out the account's bluff one user tweeted show the videos of charles playing polo and william too show w swimming or playing water polo all three of them have athletic gifts not just harry they all used to play polo together i put my clothes in the wash machine and i got a cold drink and I was just walking along the sidewalks just kind of looking around Nashville so this good looking guy went by in the Chevrolet and me being straight from the country you speak to everybody and if you don't you're stuck up you know you're just uh, you're just an old stick in the mud if you don't speak so he said you're gonna uh hello there you're gonna get sunburned I said oh I don't think so I do <laughs> so anyway so he made a circle and came back around I thought uh oh I've done it this time so <laughs> what'd you do say come on and see my spin cycle well I no, but I wish I'd have thought of that. I'm not that clever. But I tell you what, though, he did. We did start talking, and he did go back in the laundromat with me, and I was hoping he wouldn't see me get my clothes out of the, you know, the, the dryer and all. But anyway, we met at the wishy washy, and in all honesty, it's been wishy washy. Wishy washy. You meet nice people at the laundromat. And two years later, we married. I put my clothes in the wash machine, and I got a cold drink and I was just walking along the sidewalks just kind of looking around Nashville so this good looking guy went by in a Chevrolet and me being straight from the country you speak to everybody and if you don't you're stuck up you know you're just uh, you're just an old stick in the mud if you don't speak so he said you're gonna uh, Dolly part of course I said oh I don't think so I do <laughs> so, one country anyway, so old country gospel subscribed Cute animal share.
cat, or it's a kitten, kind of like. Looking <laughs> like it's gonna jump on a Boyd. <laughs> well, that was uh, that was quite a surprise. Um, the bird finally um, just like went up to the cat's face and like <laughs> it's amazing. containers. If you love the garden, save your milk jugs, vinegar jugs, any other plastic container, and it will work great in your spring and fall garden. Let me show you. Once the jug is clean, empty, and has been rinsed out, we're just going to cut off the bottom. Start with a knife and make a puncture hole. And then for safety, you can just use the scissors and you can put it right in there and start cutting around the whole bottom. The bottom part works great as a water tray underneath plants. If you have extras or need something, this is going to be great for that. But this is the real deal and why I do it. So in the spring or fall, when I want to plant seeds in my garden, I take one of these and I place it right over the seed that I'm going to plant. This creates a mini greenhouse that traps in moisture and keeps the seeds moist. Moist. And this actually helps the seeds come up much quicker and protects them. Even when they're small seedlings, this will keep these protected from any of the wind, the elements, or any critters that may want to bite them off. So this is yeah. a great way to start your seeds in the garden. You'll be happy. Well, there you go. Don't throw out plastic containers. Yeah. Good idea. Don't throw out plastic containers. If you love the garden, save Subscribe. your milk jugs. Vinegar jugs. Elephant rescue. <laughs> <laughs> Got it up with the uh, with those tractor things. This guy's building a wall. Hmm. Oh, that's pretty cool. How they go together like Legos. Nice civil engineering. Smart block. Those are pretty cool, man. Smart blocks.
She said, you're not circumcised. I said, that's ridiculous. I should know if I'm circumcised. End of conversation. But the next day, I happened to be seeing my doctor. Are you okay? <laughs> I was seeing my doctor for my annual physical, of course. So, uh, while he was down there, <laughs> I said, uh, excuse me, oh, oh, by the way, uh, Herb, uh, my wife and I had a little disagreement. Um, <clears throat> I, I am circumcised, aren't I? Because she says I'm not. And he goes, <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> she said, you're not circumcised. I said, that's ridiculous. I should know if I... For the first time ever, a monarch's grandchildren were about to stand guard. Um, by she the said, way, uh, French French said, guys aren't uh, Picard. Jean-Luc Picard, it's uh, French. They're more atheists than anything. They don't... Um, It's it's kind of weird how in America, America, um, you know everybody circum all the guys are circumcised like Jewish Jewish people. What's up with that? It's ridiculous. I See what they're saying in the comments. Hugh was like, I cannot believe I'm listening to Patrick Stewart not knowing if he's circumcised or not. <laughs> Never thought I'd know so much about the captain's log. His delivery of the knots was so good, and Hugh was laughing so hard to disbelieve those older co-stars telling the world about his penis. Imagine being the doctor and Captain Picard asked to be his circumcised, and you're never allowed to talk about it. <laughs> oh, I took his. I thought that was his. Uh, Picard of his, his real name. French, French dudes. Are uncircumcised. Nice snowman. Huh. When a Briton tells a joke that even the Australian finds outrageous. While he was down there. I've had my junk my whole life. I know what it looks like. Sir Patrick is such a legend. For the first time ever, a monarch's grandchildren were about to stand guard in the vigil of the princes. As the eight cousins marched, everything else came to a halt. Princes William and Harry, Princess Anne's children, Zara Tyndall and Peter Phillips, Prince Andrew's daughters Beatrice and Eugenie, and Prince Edward's children, Lady Louise and James Viscount Severn, just 14 years old. Harry, in uniform for the first and only time since the Queen's death, given one-off permission by his father, the King, as a mark of respect for the Crown. For the public streaming past, astonishment. They'd come to pay respects Where's to the Andrew? Queen and found themselves face to face with her family. Maybe a thousand filed past during the 12-minute vigil. Their reactions ranged from overjoyed to overwhelmed. I, I can't. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't find the words. For the first time ever, a Where's Prince Andrew? Where's Prince Andrew? LOL. 
where is Interpol when you need it? We're about to stand guard in the vision <laughs> of the princes. As the eight cousins marched, everything else came to a halt. Princes William and Harry, Princess Anne's children, Zara Tyndall and Peter Phillips, Prince Andrew's daughters, Beatrice Everybody and Eugenie, else is real and nice Prince Edward's children, Lady <laughs> Louise. So yesterday, me and my wife were just chilling on the couch, and all of a sudden I get a text message from my neighbor John. So I opened the text message, and it was so disgusting, I wrote it down so I could read it to you guys. This is what it said. Hey, Andreas, it's your neighbor, John, and I've been feeling so guilty lately that I haven't been able to sleep, and I think it's time to confess. I've been helping myself to your wife when you're at work probably more than you do. It's so incredible and so fun, and I haven't been able to contain myself. Sometimes it goes on for hours. I know it's no excuse, but I don't get any at my house. Anyway, I apologize, and it won't happen again. <laughs> So I read the message to my wife, and I look at her, and I go, you are a disgusting, cheating tramp. I never want to see you again in my life. I want a divorce, and you, you are nasty, you are grimy, you are disgusting. I don't want to see you again. So right before my wife went to speak, I get another text message from John. So I open the message, it says, shit, I really hate autocorrect. I meant to say Wi-Fi. So yesterday, me and my wife were just chilling on the couch, and all of a sudden I get a text message from my neighbor John. So I opened the text message, and it was so disgusting, I wrote it down so I could read it to you guys. This is what it said. Hey, Andreas, it's your neighbor John, and I've been feeling so guilty lately that I haven't been able to sleep, and I think it's time to confess. I've been helping myself to your wife when you're at work probably more than you do. It's so huh. incredible and so fun, and I haven't been able to contain myself. Sometimes huh. it goes on for hours. I know it's no... <laughs> <laughs> Cat that went up to a deer. <laughs> They're like sniff each other. <laughs> Playing. <laughs> I just pawed it. <laughs> Oh, I kicked it. <laughs> Racing pigeons. <laughs> it's like so random. So I love about stuff. So this Indian guy sitting next to Einstein and Einstein says, you know, it's a long flight. Why don't we have a competition? I'll ask you a question and if you can't answer it, you give me five dollars. Then uh, you can ask me a question, and if I can't answer it, said Einstein, I'll pay you $500. So Einstein said, how far is the moon from the Earth? And the Indian thought and thought, uh, he said, you know what, I really don't have the exact answer, here's $5. Then he looked at Einstein and said, what goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four? And Einstein worked through all of his knowledge of science, couldn't figure out what he was talking about, put his hand into his pocket and gave him $500. Einstein's turn again. Einstein said, before I ask you my next question, what does go up the hill with three legs and come down with four? And the Indian put his hand in his pocket and gave him $5. <laughs> so this Indian guy sitting next to Einstein, and Einstein says, you know, it's a long flight. Why don't we have a competition? I'll <laughs> ask you a question, and if you can't answer it, you'll give me $5. 
Heidi Klum in America's Got Talent. say her father grew isolated working from home during the pandemic and became so obsessed with QAnon that he grew paranoid. Well, he got a gun and shot, tried to kill everyone in my family, and I probably, he would have tried to kill me too if I was there. On September 11th, he killed Rebecca's mother, the family dog, and shot her sister. He was then killed in a standoff with police who say they are investigating any specific motive, which is yet to be determined. How was your dad before this he was a totally different person and i can say i think i started grieving him before this happened like i started realizing that he's not the same person i grew up with let's read the comments here trump's not done destroying people's lives i will say this the maga movement has destroyed families relationships friendships and much much more never had any of this before that guy so tragic how many lives have been destroyed by the narcissism and lies of one man and the cowardice of one political party time people went back to voting in a president and not think that a game show host who is a pathological liar is suitable these are great answers i'm gonna subscribe start subscribing to more people Oh, shit. Gosh. Oh, man. Damn it. More about this channel. Come on, damn it.
So, folks, old Donnie is absolutely losing it in every conceivable way. And what he just did was launch himself into an... Damn it. How do I get out of this fucking window? I'm just trying to add a subscribe subscribe to somebody. Fuck. Get the uh, usage. are telling Trump to shut the heck up and stay away because they don't care about his opinion in this race. And they're also saying that Donald Trump's threats against Georgia, if they disagree with him, they don't matter. Donald Trump isn't scaring them anymore. Trump says if Purdue loses. His voters won't turn out for Kemp. Purdue says something else. I'm gonna make. Um, this is actually four months ago. I thought it was more recent, but anyway, it's Christo Ivalis, and it says it's titled "Trump Forced to Cancel Rally After No One Shows Up." <laughs> Great title. Definitely cooked. The next governor, Georgia. So Purdue is being what most would say the good Republican there, meaning if I lose, I will support the Republican nominee. Uh, Trump says otherwise. What about voters? That's a no brainer, really, for Purdue because he knows something that's fundamental about the Republicans in Georgia and their view of things. Whatever they think of Brian Kemp, whatever they think of the 2020 election. They do not want Stacey Abrams to be elected in the fall and become governor. Uh, and so uh, I talked to a number of Republican voters in Georgia last week, most of them Purdue supporters, uh, all of them really enthusiastic about Donald Trump, and a lot of them repeating a lot of the false claims about the 2020 election Fucking that you hear from Trump and his acolytes. But when I asked them, will you vote for Kemp if he wins the primary in the general election, they all said yes, some of them enthusiastically. And so you don't hear that same sort of personal vindicativeness that you hear from Donald Trump. But it's not just about Stacey Abrams. You know, Brian Kemp has done a good job of, of delivering on this message that I am the conservative governor who's delivered on conservative policy issues. He's, he signed in a uh, abortion uh, ban, uh, a fetal heartbeat abortion ban that will obviously be very important, depending on what happens with Roe v. Wade. Uh, he signed a concealed carry bill. Uh, he got the NRA endorsement last week, Brian Kemp did, and he signed in what they're calling the biggest income tax cut in Georgia history. And John, it just to underscore the power that comes from being an incumbent governor in a primary like this, uh, I was with Kemp when he signed that income tax yeah. bill. Where did he do it? In David Perdue's hometown of Bonaire in middle Georgia. And where was the signing event? In a restaurant that David Perdue has said is his favorite spot. I mean, that's a power move. The next big stop of the midterm election season is the Georgia primary on Tuesday. Good to see y'all. Kemp is trying to project strength by looking ahead to a potential rematch with Stacey Abrams. But long before that, he must overcome vicious criticism from the loudest voice in the Republican Party. Brian Kemp is a turncoat, he's a coward, and he's a complete and total disaster. He's never forgiven Kemp and other GOP officials for refusing to meddle in the election. 
Brian Kemp. You're fucking prick. He sold you out. He didn't look. He didn't want to look. He didn't want anything to do with it. Trump convinced former Senator David Perdue to challenge Kemp, a bet that is now looking increasingly risky. 60% of Republican primary voters support Kemp, according to a new Fox News poll, while 28% back Perdue, a healthy increase in the governor's advantage uh -huh. since March. Gone are the days when Trump, Perdue, and Kemp were all part of a unified Republican family. Deep divisions rooted in the big election lie are now at the heart of the Georgia primary. So what I'm frustrated with is that we can't get our Republican leaders to investigate. They say, well, we've audited, we've looked at all that. They have not. They have not done that. At rallies, they attacked and cheated on our elections, and they did it right here in Georgia. And in TV ads, Brian Kemp let us down. We can't let it happen again. Trump blames others for his defeat. President Trump has called you a turncoat, a coward. What do you say to Georgians who are making up their mind right now, whether that they should listen to him or listen to you? I would tell Georgians I can't control what other people are saying. They want somebody's fighting for them. They're not worried about people from around the country that have been criticizing us. Kemp goes to great lengths to ignore the criticism. Some supporters do not. President Trump has a lot to say about a lot of things, uh, but the best person to unite Georgia is Governor Kemp. He needs a bit of Band-Aid and put it over his lips. A Band-Aid over his lips? <laughs> yeah. He, he needs to learn to control his speech. And I, I am a Trump supporter all the way. We'll come together after the divisive primary. After all that President Trump has said about you, if you win on Tuesday, will you seek his endorsement to help unify the party? Look, the only endorsement I'm worried about is the people of Georgia's on Tuesday. Now, Kemp is not only campaigning hard to win, he's trying Biden's to... Biden's chief of staff, Let's Ron Klain. this. Let's go. Who wants coaching? Thoughts? Trump's COVID failures. Thank you so much to Ron Klain for joining us. Uh, Ron, it was the Ebola response ago. coordinator in 2014 and a longtime Biden uh, advisor. So jumping in... Uh, to kind of more recent events, uh, in the last few days, we've seen Trump launch attacks on Twitter, not just on the platform, but on yeah. Twitter itself, on yeah. Obama and Biden, on China, on protesters in Minnesota and around the country. Is this whole scorched earth policy basically him giving up on undecided voters and, and going all in on his base? I mean, what is the political upside here? Yeah. You know, I learned it's very hard to try to understand Donald Trump and understand his motivation. I think uh, oftentimes uh, because he won this surprising victory in 2016, we see him as some kind of genius who has a master plan and all these things. You know, I think he's just a very so he didn't win. erratic, he just, he won, chaotic, he lost by three million votes incompetent leader. And so uh, you know, I don't know necessarily there's some big political strategy behind the kind of things we've seen from him in the past few days. Uh, I think a lot of it's just an air of desperation as he continues to fall behind in the race, as events continue to spiral out of control. Um, he's not running in the kind of circumstance he thought he was going to be running in. We have uh, obviously incredible, uh, you know, disruption in our country, economic losses, uh, issues of racism coming back to the surface. And so I think... You know, it, I think his reaction to it may, may be strategic. Maybe there's some secret plan here, Brian, but maybe it's just an incompetent, chaotic, erratic president being incompetent, chaotic, and erratic as he's been all three years. 
So with that said, I, I, want, I do want to uh, switch gears here and talk a little bit about the pandemic. Um, so my first question is, how did you manage to leave Trump broken tests for a virus that wouldn't even come into existence for three more years? Because that is just, I mean, it's impressive, to say the least. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. Um, most presidents, when they face a crisis, they step up to it. I mean, put aside ideology and politics and your approach, but most presidents, they get a crisis thrown in their lap. They say, I'm going to step up to this. I'm going to try to tackle it. I'm going to, you know, really show leadership. And what Trump has done, as you alluded to, is just really wake up every day and figure out who, other than him, he can blame for his mistakes. And that includes blaming us for leaving him broken tests for a disease that didn't yet exist when we left office. Blaming China, which does deserve some blame here, no question about it. WHO, which isn't perfect. But, but, but I mean, it's just an endless effort by Trump to tweet away a virus that needs an active, aggressive government response. Right. And, and, th- and that's what we expect our presidents to do. I mean, uh, and instead, what happened here? Look, what, what really happened here? What really happened here was the warning signs were clear in late December and January that there was a problem in China. The president was busy chasing his trade deal with the Chinese and silenced people in his administration who wanted to raise alarms about this so he could get his trade deal with the Chinese government. And once he got it, he wanted to celebrate it. So he was busy slathering praise on President Xi at a time when he should have been asking hard questions to President Xi about what was going on in China. The president was busy tweeting out in late January that China had it under control and all Americans owed a debt of thanks to President Xi. That was his position. Well, we really could have done something about it. We could have gotten eyes on the ground in China to find out what was really going on there. How big we did have eyes on, on the ground in China, by the way, which I, I think, you know, it's 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 easy to get for that information to get lost amid all the, you know, the barrage of of, yeah. of, of our news cycle. But, but we had, we had you know, pandemic response offices and that, that were closed <laughs> in 39 out of 49 countries, including China, which in retrospect, not the best move. Not the best move, right? Not the best move to shut down the PREDICT program, which is what you're talking about, a program we started in the Obama administration. Not the best move. We, we, we negotiated and got, as part of that PREDICT program, the right to put an official inside the Chinese Disease Control Agency. The U.S. government had that right. President Trump left that position vacant. Not the best move to shut down the pandemic preparedness office. we created inside the National Security Council in the Obama administration and then President Trump uh, and John Bolton shut down uh, in uh, 2018. So a lot of not the best moves that would have made us much better positioned to deal with this when it came. Yeah. So actually, with regards to China, so I, I, I do want to say, um, I, I know that Trump is blaming China because he needs a scapegoat. Uh, and I don't want to validate those attacks. But with that said, there, there clearly were suppression efforts in China. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't 
um, that doesn't absolve Trump of responsibility, but it does exist as a separate issue. So what, what do we do with regard to China from here? Is there, is there punishment, retribution? Is this a, you just chalk it up to a learning experience? So I think, Brian, you're exactly right on this. We need to separate two issues. One, did China mislead? And did China cover up uh, what was going on here? Yes. And that's China's fault. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But of course, that was true for the entire world. And so the next question we have to ask ourselves is, China did handle this the wrong way. But then how come there are just hundreds of people dead in Korea, which is much closer to China, and over 100,000 people dead in the United States on the other side of the planet? How come there the disease is over in New Zealand, which again is much closer to China, and yet we're still in the midst of a raging pandemic here in the United States. So China did wrong things. And then President Trump blew the response. And we should never let him use the first of those to absolve himself of blame for the second of those. Other countries found Trump was a fluffer for tyrants. I think that's a really good joke. <laughs> Disease, notwithstanding China's problems. Right? I mean, I think I, I think he's under the impression that we that we live in a vacuum and we're the only country that experienced this when in reality you have you know he keeps on bragging about how many other countries in the world because he's trying to you know diffuse responsibility off of himself he's saying look 184 other countries around the, around the world have dealt with this same virus if you look at those other countries you'll realize that they've all responded or most of them ever maybe with, with the exception of of brazil and a few other countries that also have you know far-right hardline nationalist leaders They've all responded well to this. So we don't live in a vacuum and we, we have the luxury, you know, of uh, relatively speaking, of being able to, to point to countries like Germany and New Zealand and Australia and, you know, uh, Canada, right, right, right next door, you know, countries all around the world and, and, sh and, and show how they've responded properly to this, to this virus.
You know, I think what South Korea had uh, had zero cases. You know, the, the, on the same day that we that we you know have yet again had uh, between five hundred and a thousand. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Brian. And look, I, to go back to your China question, I do think we need to take strong measures uh, uh, against China. I, I, Let's go to the problem back. with John Stewart uh, podcast. The, this is the podcast. It's the problem. My name is John Stewart. Uh, we're back on Apple TV Plus, season two on October seventh. And so we're excited today. We are joined by the SNL uh, film troupe, Please Don't Destroy, But In the Future. This is them, 15 years older, from the set of a public access porn set. What, what are we doing here? 15 years older, eat shit. 20, 20 years older. These are, it's, it's uh, the, the founders of Crooked Media, the hosts of Pod Save America, John Favreau, John Lovett. Tommy Beater, here's what I like about you guys. You're doing Pod Save America together, but then you have your solo projects. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, it, it, it's what keeps it fresh for you, I would assume. <laughs> yeah, love it's our Beyonce. We still spend too much time together. Now, now, how did you come together? To- uh, so Tommy and I met in the Obama Senate office in 2005, uh, and then uh, I hired John Lovett yeah. to join the White House speechwriting staff. I really tricked him. He, uh, he, had, he had worked for Hillary Clinton in the uh, 2008 campaign, and then after after Obama won, uh, hired Lovett. And yeah. then we all, that's how we all met. And you hired me despite the fact that uh, a person who is still involved in politics at a high level tried to ding me, tried to keep me from getting the job. Name names. Tried to queer the deal. Trying to make some news. Talk to me. I'm not going to say. She just said that Lovett Wait, was what? a lot. She said Lovett was a lot, which was correct. I am a lot. You're talking about Hillary. Hillary I'm talking about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Hillary Clinton. Hillary, tried to do Hillary Clinton said uh, John Lovett is a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. I like uh, the situation here because right now it looks like John Favreau and Tommy uh, Vitor are your chaperones. Yes. Because yeah, well, you appear to be, uh, listen, a kid with maybe some attention issues, mm-hmm. and you're sitting in between them on your way to camp. That's how I'm viewing the setup. Nailed it. Me sitting in between them started out as something I just would write in my diary. <laughs> God. You're a lot. I'm a lot. I like to be uncomfortable. You and and all of us, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Let me me say this. Job well done, sir. Uh, When you're coming from, this is somewhat interesting to me, in 2008, so you're coming from the Clinton campaign. The Obama campaign has defeated you. Mm -hmm. How quickly can you turn off the ill feeling? So how quickly does that dissipate? And and how did it manifest? The bad blood between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama themselves was far less than the bad blood at the staff level. I hated the Clinton campaign more than I ever hated John McCain and Sarah Palin in the general election, mostly because we we won handily in the in the primary with so long. So what was the cause of the antipathy? Was it purely, we want this so badly because we believe so much in the agenda we're going to bring to the American public? How much of it is sort of Jets, Giants, we're on this team, you're on that team, and how much of it is uh, we're being outsmarted. I mean, I think from the from the Obama side, yeah, I think it was we we very much believed our message that he represented change and she represented politics as usual and what was wrong with Washington. And so we got ourselves probably more spun up than we should have. That mm-hmm. the Clintons are were a, sort of an era of politics that the Democratic Party in the country needed to move past. And then the reverse of that is. Mm-hmm. If we're so bad, why is our policy agenda basically indistinguishable? Like, we're basically making the same case. Except we're opposing the war in Iraq. 
Uh, well, that was obviously something uh, that right. left a real mark on people at the time. Uh, we were, all, but we were for the, we were, we were for, uh, 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 we were for the healthcare mandate, right? Yeah, that's true. So that's how about true. that? Also, people, do you think people remember that? We were just petty. Do you guys want to announce the breakup of your show now? Oh, you can't, you can't tear <laughs> this apart. You can't tear this apart. The things we fight about in private, you have no access to. <laughs> the real thing, the real shit, you're nowhere near it. You can't get. Let close me tell you something. Let me tell you something, though. That brings up an unbelievably good point, John. And obviously you did it uh, accidentally. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I want to I bring this up because what I want people to understand is the conversations behind the scenes of political campaigns and in Washington are so profoundly different from the conversations that are had in public and the the, the, the messaging that goes on in public. And I, I want to ask you guys, as people who are expert in crafting those messages and also uh, individuals who are present in those rooms, whereas uh, John just mentioned, the shit they talk about, you can't even believe. How do we close that gap? And, and why does that gap exist? Why, why are politicians so loath? to give public uh, insight into the real conversation that's going on. And wouldn't that connect maybe a little bit, a little bit better? I mean, one of the reasons we started this podcast is to close that distance and to sort of kind of have the conversations out loud that people have uh, on campaigns in private. And just because we don't care what people think of us as much anymore now that we're out of politics. But I do think the, you asked the reason why people aren't sort of more honest or just talk how like they do in private. I think the media environment is such that like if you you get taken out of context, you say something that gets you know blown up on cable or on Twitter, and then suddenly you you lose control of the message. Right, a campaign, a political operation is designed to keep control of the message that you're trying to relay to the American people about why you should. Uh, why you should get elected and if you lose control of that message because you said something that got taken out of context or you know caused a big thing on Twitter then you know then you uh, then you're then you're down and that's just tough. One example of this John is like I think candidates get in trouble when they talk about the electorate and the American people sort of as sociologists or they sort of step back and, and, and uh, you know talk about politics and in, in, in that kind of way like uh, when Barack Obama said sometimes you know you have communities that have been hollowed out by NAFTA and trade deals etc and they cling to their guns and religion, dot, 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 right? And he was sort of just like stepping back and trying to assess why these communities feel the way they do, honestly, in a way to try to empathize with them and sort of be in their shoes and understand where certain conservatives were coming from. You know, that, that's something that followed us around for another eight years. It seems like, though, it'd be very hard, and maybe this is campaign discipline, for candidates to create an environment where... You couldn't be taken out of context. I mean, the environment of modern media is to launder information, to take things out of context, to weaponize it. But wouldn't it be better and easier for candidates to try not to outsmart something they have no control over? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think a lot of a lot of candidates, especially candidates that don't feel comfortable with the message they're driving they don't trust what their instincts tell them to say or what their actual views are so they feel like they have to be very very careful their first thought is not what do i think but but what should i say how should i sound that they become boring uh they become rote 
But at the same time, the other side of that coin is uh, a lot of what a candidate does is travel around saying the same thing over and over and over again. And I think a lot of times, especially those of us that pay attention really closely, we kind of have a, 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 a contradictory demand, which is we want them to be authentic. We want them to be honest. But we mm -hmm. want them to do that while repeating themselves over and over and over again. So we're kind of <laughs> demanding, we're demanding a performance of authenticity from these candidates, even as we right. also understand their job is to say a lot of the same thing to new audiences every single day. I, I do think you're right, though, that the candidates and politicians who are most appealing, who end up being most appealing and inspiring and exciting to people, are the ones who um, just sort of say what's on their mind. Now, it's always a spectrum, right? Look like at no Trump. One, look, I was going to say Donald wasn't, Trump. wasn't honest, but he said what was on his mind. Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, right? Like there's, there's Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke, yeah, right. On the but then, of course, it didn't work for him in 2020 because it was too on his mind. Um, but, like, yeah, so I think it's a spectrum, obviously. But I think, I mean, in this race, uh, in, in the midterms right now, um, John Fetterman, right, is a candidate who a lot of voters find appealing. And the reason they find him appealing, and I was talking to some voters in Pittsburgh about this, they're like, look, he makes mistakes. He's weird sometimes. But I trust him. I don't know why. I just trust him because he's just saying what he believes. And I like that. And I was like, yeah, more politicians should do that. Politically, probably a mistake to have a stroke. John, John's a lot. John, John Lovett you know is a what? lot. Pluck that one for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, I'll give you guys uh, an example. This is a true story. Uh, at the end of every Daily Show season, right, we would invite all the press people, sort of the uh, those who ran the press offices of Congress people, whether they be reps or senators, to come and sit and have a conversation with myself and our book. And the conversation was always on their end. How can my boss, congressman, congresswoman, senator, have a successful daily show appearance? Because they all look to media appearances as kind of a gold standard of, of, of setting a message and maybe creating a little hype. And I would say, okay, so here's what I would do. Uh, they could come on the show and say what they think. And then what I'll do is I'll say what I think about... <laughs> about what they said, and, and then we'll kind of go from there. And the press people would all sit back and go, so, so the strategy is authenticity. And I'd go, no, it's not a strategy. It's, it's leadership and what you believe. Say what you believe. And so often we'd have people on the show who would write books like, liberals skull fuck nuns and then they would come on I read that. and and i would say you know i read your book and here you say liberals skull fuck nuns and they would go we're not that far apart as a nation <laughs> and 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 you were part of that sort of consultant media industrial complex has that so overtaken uh the way that people get elected that we've kind of ignore governance it certainly has overtaken everything else in the context of a campaign i think with governing um at least but does the campaign ever end i guess is my point no and so within that <laughs> the campaign never ends that's my that's i mean kind of when my... we look when we were in the white house with obama at least he he was a president who tried to make sure that he was governing doing the right things making the right decisions that's not to say that Political considerations never entered his mind. Of course they did. He ran for re-election. You know, politics mm -hmm. is always there. But I think when he was like, you know, when he was like, when he faced a conundrum of like, should I do the political thing or should I just sit here and govern? Like when the Affordable Care Act almost failed, 
uh, and his advisors were like, you should not try to pass it. You should take it. You should pull the pull the bill because otherwise you're not going to get reelected. And he's like, I don't care if I get reelected. I came here to do hard things. I'm going to pass the Affordable Care Act. If, I, if I'm unpopular because of it, so be it, right? So I think like that was the, but I, look, the press also covers politics only through the political lens and not through the government right. lens at all at this point, which is tough. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there are going to be some politicians who are authentically boring in the process of governing can be authentically boring at times, right? So it's hard to make it exciting and get it covered. But I do think it is a problem that we live in a, a political dynamic, and it's not just the United States, it's everywhere, where, um, you know, the, the price of entry is potentially getting destroyed, having your entire background looked into just, you know, having your family right. turned upside down. I mean, look at this. The, the Prime Minister of Finland, Sana Marin, this young woman, she's like 35. Right. She was dancing with her friends and having a couple of drinks, like doing nothing wrong, not doing drugs, not doing anything. And the press destroyed her. No, no. Let me let me push back on that. An expression of joy from a Scandinavian country. No, 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 my friend. <laughs> Question not that. during... Not during the Ubernacht. No, there there will be no Scandinavian joy. Yeah, that is that is a rule we all must follow. I mean, you hear about people who run for office who spend their like in college are like, can you please take down that photo of yeah, me on Facebook yeah. and, and shit like that because it's sort of seen as the only way to survive the process. Yeah, if that and if that's the system, that those are the boring politicians we're going to get from that system. The people were like so careful throughout their whole lives <laughs> that they're not worried about what might happen. Well, that, so Tommy, though, brings up a good point because he said, or Trump. Now, that guy hasn't scrubbed his social media. Like, he'd have to do it every 11 minutes. You know, he's a guy who goes out there and says, I mean, he's an antibiotic-resistant candidate. And, and maybe... That's what you need. I mean, he had sex with an adult movie star while his wife was pregnant, paid her $130,000 as hush money, and still married, and his lawyer's the one who ends up going to jail. You know, is there... Chappelle used to have a very funny bit where he'd be like, Democrats, man, it's like Republicans can do whatever they want. Democrats can't even sniff hair. Like, <laughs> is there... Are, are you... Are Democrats, in some respects, policing their own in a manner that's presumptive, like, look at what happened to Al Franken. You know, you have a situation where, in the midst of this movement, Al Franken has to be removed from the Senate for something that there's people in the Senate right now that have done far worse, that's known about. And there are no repercussions from voters or anyone else. I, I think you can sort of step back from, I, I think the, the, the pattern there is a bigger one, and it's it's talk about it so much it's it's hard to always go back to it as the answer but mm -hmm. we have two different media environments uh we see all the time you know one of the questions we get all the time from people is like why are republicans so good at messaging and why are democrats so good at messaging why do democrats come after their own and republicans don't how do democrats get tagged with defund the police and republicans don't how can trump do all these different things and, and these democrats can't get away with anything and mm -hmm. you step back and it's like it's not because republicans are brilliant not because they have better they're, they're, they're so sophisticated about messaging compared to us they have a giant propaganda apparatus that a covers democrats in a way that pulls up the things that are the most divisive that are the worst for democrats politically and b inoculates republicans against some of their worst excesses look you have lindsey graham going out there proposing a national abortion ban incredibly political politically stupid even mitch mcconnell trying to get out of talking about it doesn't get the hype 
on Fox News that you would expect for something that would be really popular with their base, why they recognize that it's not advantageous for them. So not only do they tar Democrats over and over again in a way that spills over into the into the uh, mainstream political punditry, they also kind of provide a little a big bubble for their right wing crowd that's much more insulated from the stories that would that would hurt their own side or, or make them skeptical. Of but I would go one step further here because I think Donald Trump's superpower is shamelessness. Like he doesn't feel shame. And I think that's now what the whole Republican Party has realized as well, is that like if you can't publicly shame them, then you can't hurt them. And they and also they don't they've sort of let go of all their principles as well. So like like Democrats have all these principles that they're trying to uphold and so then when they fall short of those principles, then people call them out for hypocrisy or say that you have to step down or, or whatever, right? Republicans don't have those in the first place, they just did away with them. So therefore, like, you can't, if you, if you call them out for something, they're like, yeah, well, I'm, I don't care. I'm not going to be shamed. I do have this propaganda apparatus that's going to protect me. But also, you can say whatever you want about me, and it's fine. It's not going to bug me. I'm not going to step down. I'm not going to apologize. Once the political consequences fell away, in part because of the, the, the machine that they built, the next, bit of, the next guardrail was supposed to be shame. Yeah. And they realized that they could blow right through that one. But shame has always been an artifice of politics. They're, they're really, you know... Everybody always points to the moment when uh, you know, McCarthy here is, you know, the undersecretary of defense said, ha- at last, sir, have you no decency, you know, and no shame. And everybody's like, watershed moment. As though, like, McCarthy just disappeared into a cloud at that moment and floated away on the vapors of shame. You know, we've always been a country that overestimates the power of the conscience and, and, and mythologized it. And it's not real. And, and don't the Republicans win because they understand what currency their base operates under. They all operate on the same monetary standard, whereas Democrats are a, by necessity, stitched together coalition of a variety of interests. And that's always going to be harder to clearly message and wrangle. It's not like the Democrats don't have any press. It's not like they don't, uh, I mean, how many times can you hear the words, the big lie, before you just want to like, tear your hair out? It's, it's not like they're helpless. A, the Republicans, their media works towards a goal. Here, here's a great example. Sean Hannity was talking about Jen Psaki. Her uh, ascendance to, and I don't really know what network she's working on now, CNN or MSNBC. This is evidence of the incredible incestuous relationship between Democrats and the media machine. Sean Hannity was with Donald Trump talking strategy. He's in all the textbooks. Like, they have created a set of rules that everyone else feels they have to that they know that their own audience won't hold them to. And why does the... I remember I visited Obama's White House twice. Eight years ago. He called me down to yell at me twice. What'd you do? Uh, We'll get into that. Okay, good. Uh, But it was on the log line. The right-wing media went crazy, attacking it as uh, secret meetings showing the incestuous relationship between the left 